Well, Acts 25 and 26, we've got here Paul before Festus and, uh, and Agrippa. And when you're on trial, in a sense almost potentially on trial for his life, you do come to know yourself. And that is relevant, I think, to our breaking of bread, because here we face the death of Jesus, and inevitably we examine ourselves, and that is why there's no real possibility of saying, well, should we just think about Jesus as he was on the cross, or should we, as it were, make an inventory of our own failures and how we should do better? Um, <clears throat> if you focus upon him there and realize the eternity of the issues involved, you naturally will come to know yourself. And God brings these situations into our lives. And so that we might, in a sense, know ourselves. And I think that this is what was going on here with Paul. And therefore, in his defense to these these emperors, the, not emperors, but uh, these Roman rulers, I think we see him revealing a lot about himself. Now, when you come to chapter 25, uh, verse 11, he says something which uh, just jars slightly on first reading. He says, if I have committed anything worthy of death, I don't refuse to die. He comes over as very assured of his own rightness in all this. <clears throat> and that's why he says, I appeal to Caesar, because I really did nothing wrong to the Jews, I, I, I did nothing wrong to Caesar, etc. Well, wait a minute, Paul, you did nothing worthy of death. Well, maybe in a very legalistic sense, possibly. But look, he admits elsewhere that he did persecute, torture, and murder Christians. He was, after all, a sinner, as he says quite clearly in Romans 7. So before God, he was worthy of death, and he knew that. But why then does he come out with this statement that, I have done nothing worthy of death, I am not worthy of death, that's why I refuse to die. That's why I appeal to Caesar. Well, you can read it different ways. You could say this is Paul somewhat arrogant, and the way that he talks in verse uh, 10 and onwards about, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged, uh, as if, well, you know, I'm standing on my rights. You could read it all as uh, somewhat uh, arrogant and even weak spiritually. And in fact, when he says, I appeal to Caesar... Uh, there in uh, verse 9 um, sorry not, not, not verse 9 um, verse 11 he says uh, I, I appeal to Caesar that Greek word for appeal as an appeal to Caesar it is literally to call upon the name of and it's usually used in Acts and the New Testament about calling on the name of the Lord, not Caesar, who was Lord of the Roman Empire, but on the name of Jesus. And the fact he doesn't talk about calling upon the name of the Lord, but I call upon the name of Caesar, you could read as, uh, as weakness, maybe so. But there's another possibility here. When he says, I've done nothing worthy of death, when he clearly had before God, it's rather similar to how in chapter 23, verse 1, he says, I have lived in good conscience before God until this day. Whereas he had been kicking against the goads, against the pricks. Jesus says that. Um, and he, Paul himself tells us that that's what Jesus said, that it's very hard to kick against the goads. 
And that's what Paul had been doing before his conversion. And so how then did he have a clear conscience? And why can he so confidently say here, I've done nothing worthy of death, when he had? It's a similar conundrum to how David can say in the last words of David, I, he says to God, I was always upright before you, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Well, wait a minute. He talks in the Psalms of penitence after the Bathsheba incident of how his whole body cried out in the time between the sin and his repentance before Nathan uh, because of his bad conscience, and yet he talks as if he's done nothing wrong at the end of his life. Now, were Paul and David simply uh, arrogant and not paying enough attention to their own failures? And that, that's possible. But there is another possibility that's very relevant to us. And it is that Hebrews talks about the conscience being cleansed in Christ. And what does this mean, to have a conscience that has been washed with pure water, as Hebrews puts it? I don't think it means we forget that we committed any sin. I think it means that we genuinely believe that our sin has been dealt with, to the point that we can lift up our face to God. We are convinced that, really, I have done no wrong, in the sense that it has been taken away. And I prefer to think that that's really how Paul was feeling here. That there he is on trial, and he obviously is aware of all the bad things he's done, and he even talks to, to uh, Agrippa about them when he talks about how he used to persecute the Christians. And yet he really feels that his conscience has been cleansed. That's why he can say, you know, Jesus said to me, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks, but you know what, I lived, 23 verse 1, in all good conscience before God. I mean, in the, our study on Acts 23, I, I gave various ways of reading this, but one of them is that he realized that he had been forgiven absolutely. And it's that frankness of God's forgiveness, the absolute quality of it, the absolute taking away of sin, the making of all things new in human life because we are in Christ and because we have been cleansed, it is that which should evoke in us the same kind of feeling. But although I am a terrible sinner, as Paul keeps reminding us, we really believe that that has been dealt with. And this is why we can have, as he says, all joy and peace through believing. Now, <clears throat> he goes on in, in chapter 26 to uh, talk about uh, how he really thinks that Agrippa ought to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Why should it be thought with you something impossible, that God should raise the dead? And he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus. <clears throat> um, that resurrection, he's saying, you, you shouldn't find it so hard to believe, because look at the change that happened in my life. And that's, he goes on in 8 and 9 and, and 10, 11, 12, talking about his conversion and how he used to be one person and he became another. And he presents that as a reason to believe that Jesus rose from the dead and why even a king like Agrippa should not consider it too difficult to believe because of the transformation in Paul's life. You've got something similar when Peter is preaching about forgiveness. He basically says, I am a witness. I personally, I, Peter, am a witness that Jesus has ascended to heaven and that he has 
obtained there forgiveness of sins, which he is willing to mediate to people on earth now. Now, you know, Peter, you did not go up to heaven and just check it out. You were not a, a visual witness of the ascension of Jesus to heaven. You weren't there uh, watching God say to Jesus, Now, Jesus, now you, can, uh, you have all power to forgive anybody anything that you like. Peter didn't go to heaven and see that. He wasn't a visual witness. But he says to the people he's preaching to, I am a witness of that. In other words, his own experience of forgiveness was so dramatic and was so obvious that it was actually a proof that Jesus had ascended and had gained forgiveness of sin. And of course Peter is saying all that at a time just a few months after he had denied Jesus and he's uh, saying that, uh, preaching that message probably no more than a hundred meters from where he had actually made the denial in the high priest's house. And everybody knew that. And that is why I think he was such a credible preacher, and why he got so many people to just say, yes, sure, I also want to get that forgiveness. What do I have to do? And he says, well, you just got to be baptized and confess your sin, be baptized and you'll get forgiveness. Sure, right on, I'll do it straight away. And of course, that is how we can, as it were, persuade people of things which, humanly speaking, no one really should believe from the point of view of visible evidence that Jesus existed, uh, never sinned, and died, resurrected, went to heaven, and now mediates forgiveness of sin to people. However, can anyone be persuaded of that? They can only really be persuaded of it by seeing the effect of it in another life. It's another person's life. It's okay saying, well, read the Bible, it says that. But for me, logically, that is a circular argument. That only throws the question back a stage further, to say, well, yeah, I believe that because it's written in the Bible. Well, yes, but okay, so someone said this, somebody wrote this. Okay, but does that mean that I personally have to believe it? People have written all kind of nonsense. Do I therefore have to believe it because it's written in some holy book? We can only believe it, I think, particularly if one is illiterate, as most of the converts to Christianity were and have been down the last 2,000 years. Uh, our age at the moment is unusual uh, from that point of view. It's an anomaly. The vast majority of Christians have been illiterate. Uh, people only believe that because they saw it reflected in real human life right up close to them in people whom they knew now he goes uh, further then to <clears throat> to talk about how he had persecuted the Christians now this account of his persecution of the Christians occurs three times of course that is the actual record earlier on in uh, Acts uh, 8 and 9 and then he recounts it in Acts 22 and now we have it a third time in Acts 26 and it's interesting to just look at the differences between the records because they seem to get uh, progressively more detailed and we see more and more the evil that he did um, in Acts 8 verse 3 it says that he arrested men and women in chapter 9, verse 3, he admits he threatened and murdered them, or tortured and murdered them. Chapter 22, verse 4, he says, I persecuted the way, that is Christian, Christianity, unto death. And he says, 
that those he persecuted were those who believe, Acts 22:19. And now in Acts 26, 10 and 11, as he recounts it now for the third time, he talks about those people as the saints, verse 10 of chapter 26. Start off in uh, <clears throat> Acts 8, verse 3, they were men and women. Chapter 22, verse 19, those who believe, and now they were the saints whom he had persecuted. So I think he came to realize more and more the wonder of the children of God. That those who believe are not just men and women, they are believers and they are saints in God's eyes. And progressively, if you put Paul's letters chronologically, he seems to have an increasing respect for other members of the body of Christ, which is uh, really all the more amazing when you consider his own spiritual growth uh, and development, and the fact that all those in Asia turned away from him, and so many of those whom he had converted didn't exactly act well to him. So instead of getting bitter and sort of withdrawing inside himself, as a lot of people do whose development spiritually is somewhat dysfunctional, in some areas they develop but in others they, they regress, uh, and typically a lot of those people end up sort of pushing off on their own, but Paul becomes more and more generous in the way that he writes about his brethren, and 2 Timothy 4 at the very end of his life, or certainly his very last uh, recorded letter, is very clear about that. He's praising Mark, he's uh, very positive really about his brethren. And if you look at the sort of language he uses, he talks more and more about what in English we would translate as co, co-worker, my fellow soldier, my co-soldier, my fellow labourer, this Greek uh, prefix sun, S-U-N, my, my co-worker, my, my co-soldier, my, my co-prisoner, my co-laborer, etc., my co-preacher. He uses that, those words that have this sun prefix more and more in his letters. <clears throat> As I say, if you put them chronologically, and they're not in the English Bible in a chronological order, but if you put them chronologically, you'll see that, that he becomes more and more aware of his brethren. And see in verse uh, 18, he recounts how his work was to bring people to have an inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in Christ. He remembered that, that salvation is in a body, in the body of Jesus. And we are not saved one by one, as it were, as individuals. There is ultimately only one death and one resurrection, and that is of the Lord Jesus. And by baptizing people into him, into his death and resurrection. We are helping them towards salvation in the sense that their salvation is in Christ. But it was a community, it is a community that is saved. It is the community that is in Jesus, because it's only Jesus, in one sense, who has been saved. He is the singular seed of Abraham, and it is only by our connection with him in his wider sense, in the sense of his body, um, the community that is him, uh, that we can find salvation. So salvation is, as he puts in verse 18, or Jesus says in verse 18, an inheritance amongst all those others who are sanctified. So the fact that 
here in 26 verse 10 he now talks about the people who he persecuted as saints whereas earlier 8 verse 3 they were men and women 22 19 they were those who believe and now they are saints you see his perception of them far higher and also I think you also see his perception of his own weakness because he in chapter 8 verse 3 he he arrested them chapter 9 verse 3 he threatened and murdered them 22 verse 4 he persecuted the way unto death and now in chapter 26 verses 10 and 11 you get even more information about what he did to them he says in verse 11 I punished them often in every synagogue every synagogue he often punished them compelled them to blaspheme being exceedingly mad against them this is the language of a, uh, a crazed wild beast I persecuted them even into the cities of the Gentiles and it was on my way to such a Gentile city in Damascus that I met the Lord so his perception of his own sinfulness increased I think between these three accounts of his, uh, his conversion you see that elsewhere if you put his letters chronologically in 1 Corinthians 15 where it's one of his early letters he talks about him, himself as the least of the apostles he was an apostle but he says really I was the least of them in Ephesians, a bit later, he says that I am less than the least of all the saints. I'm the worst believer. And in 1 Timothy, really towards his end, he says, I am the chief of sinners. I'm the worst bloke in the world. That's how he felt about himself. So there's a progressive realization there of his own sinfulness, and yet you can't deny that there is a progressive realization of his own salvation I mean the language he uses in Romans 7 about himself this uh, almost hopeless conflict and tension between flesh and spirit within him and just saying well I'm saved by grace whilst that is all true uh, as it stands he talks far more positively in later letters about the victory of the spirit against the flesh and he's absolutely convinced by the time of 2 Timothy 4 that he is surely going to receive the crown of righteousness that is laid up for him and this I think is a pattern for our spiritual growth a progressive realization of our own sinfulness a progressive valuing of our brethren and all those that are redeemed in Christ and yet also a progressive conviction that by God's grace I will be saved now in this third account of the, um, of the Damascus Road incident there's a few things that he adds which you don't see elsewhere in the other records he talks about here the other men who were with him falling to the ground uh, verse 14 when we, we all fell to the earth um, he talks about the brightness of the light verse 13 the light from heaven he adds here the third time was above the brightness of the sun I think you see there a suggestion that over time as he now goes through this for the third time accounting for his conversion I'm sure he did it many times but this is the, uh, the recorded time when he does it he sees the greatness of Jesus 
me go through Paul's letters, and again chronologically, and try and work out the titles that he uses for Jesus. You find him increasingly calling Jesus the Lord Jesus, or just the Lord. You see it also going through Peter's letters chronologically. And I've put all this stuff in my, uh, in my books on Peter and, and Paul, that both of them go through this, that they progressively over time give Jesus higher and higher praise. And I think that is also a sign of spiritual maturity. That we come to see the greatness of the Lord Jesus, that we see the height of who he really was and is for us today. And so, as we break bread now, I think we can ask ourselves whether that is really how, how we feel. And the other thing you notice, or one of the things you notice, looking at Paul chronologically, is his increasing sense that he is a slave of the gospel. And um, he, he talks about himself, uh, verse 16 here, he remembers how Jesus told him, you shall be a minister and a witness. A minister there is, uh, is a slave, uh, possibly a galley slave, rowing the boat chained to the oars. That sense that we are serving him, this became more and more for Paul, uh, the, the defining sense that he had, that I'm not in this for myself, it's all about him, and it's not about me. Just in conclusion, in that context, I would like to just point out how later on in chapter 26, he talks in verse 20 about how he was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but he showed unto other people that they should repent. He showed that, and he says, I did that because... Uh, it's written in the prophets, verse 22, that, verse 23, Christ should suffer, and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead, and that he should show light unto the people of Israel and to the Gentiles. So he says, verse 20, I showed to other people the gospel. And in verse 23 he says, the prophets had prophesied that Christ would show light to other people. So he sees a prophecy about Jesus personally as the light that would be shown to the world. He sees that directly as speaking to him. Now, the, the passage he seems to have in mind is uh, from Isaiah, where uh, Jesus is predicted as being the, the light of the world. And earlier, he's, in Acts 13, he quotes that same scripture. Uh, in Acts 13, um, 47, when they're saying to Paul, Look, why, why are you preaching to the Gentiles? He says, verse 47, Because so has the Lord Jesus commanded us, saying, Then he quotes from Isaiah, I have set thee, that is you singular, Jesus, to be a light of the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. And so Paul is saying, What was said about Jesus personally is a command to me. If he is predicted and prophesied as the light of the Gentiles, I must show that light to the Gentiles. All that is true of him must be true of me. It's a command. There is an imperative in who he is that I should be likewise. 
Jesus makes this particular point clear when he says in two different places, I am the light of the world, and in another place, you are the light of the world. All that is true of him becomes true of us. Now we, by status, are seen by God as if we are Jesus. We were baptized into Christ, and therefore we, we became the seed of Abraham. And Galatians 3.8, the seed is in the singular. The promises of salvation, eternal life on the earth, blessing, uh, etc., having God as your God, were made to two people, to Abraham and to his seed, which was one person, and that was Jesus. And yet, as Paul says, end of Galatians, whoever has been baptized into Christ has become part of Christ. And therefore, all that is true of Jesus, including the promises about Abraham's seed, who was Jesus, become true of us. And this is his whole point in Romans, that we who in one sense are condemned by our own sins in the dock before God's justice, we are declared right. We are not just led off because the judge turned a blind eye or because he had a, a feeling of softness came over him, but we are, even in a legal sense, declared right. Only because we are in Christ. So then, if that is how God sees us, then that is how we should try to be in practice. We, in practice, should try to be like him. Now, if he, therefore, Paul says, is the light of the world, whatever is predicted about Jesus or predicated upon him is therefore true of me. And again you see Paul, I think, in, at his finest here, uh, when he really realizes that I am him and he is me. And it's not about me, as in the unredeemed me, anymore. It's not a hobby. It's not a Sunday morning job. It's not uh, something we pick up and put down occasionally in our lives that we have a passing intellectual inter interest in. This is our lives. Because we are him, and he is us. And in the end, God will be all and in all.